Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why are monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand humans? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientist with me, Sue Marchant and Chris Smith. Daniel has said that um, he's been uh, doing his grade three keyboard exam this week and um, he was a little bit nervous. And he says, why do you handshake when you're nervous? Well, the reason for that is because when we get nervous, it induces something called the fight or flight reaction. And this is the evolutionary thing we have to help us escape from danger or turn around and face the danger and win the ensuing fight. And it's all down to the hormone adrenaline and its chemical relative noradrenaline. So when you're in a nervous situation, the brain, and specifically the part of the brain called the hypothalamus, sends signals down your spinal cord and out of the spinal cord and into your adrenal glands. Those sit on top of the kidneys. That's why they're called adrenal glands, because they're next to the renal system, the kidneys. And the adrenal gland has a number of compartments to it, but the core of the adrenal gland is a bright yellow colour because it's got what are called chromaffin cells, and they make adrenaline and noradrenaline, which is a bit similar to adrenaline. It just, cha- it just binds slightly differently onto some of the chemical docking stations. This leaches into the blood and goes around your blood system, and every cell in your body give or take, has some kind of receptor or chemical docking station for adrenaline. And adrenaline alters the behaviour of different tissues and different cells in different ways, depending upon what would give you the best advantage in a fight-or-flight situation. So in your lungs, for example, it causes the muscle lining the lungs to open up so that you can get more air in and out. In your heart, it causes the blood vessels supplying the heart to open up so you can get more blood into the heart muscle and the heart also speeds up and pumps harder. So in other words, you can get more blood around your body and you can run faster. In your head, it causes your pupils, the eyes, to open up and you get big pupils and that's to let more light in and also encourage you to be able to see far into the distance so you can get away. And that's also why when you go to an exam, you sometimes struggle to see the paper or see the words properly on the page to start with and you have to blink a few times because you're nervous and it's because it's opened up your pupil wide and this is defocusing the light going into your eye so it's much harder to read the words on the page. That's why sometimes when you're nervous in an exam, the exam paper appears a bit blurry. Now one of the other things that adrenaline does is it keys up all your muscles, it tunes up all your muscles so that they can react and respond more promptly and more powerfully than they would when you're at rest. But the problem is, when you increase that tension like that, then the muscles do become a bit more reactive than they would normally, and they shake a bit, and so you get a tremor. The other thing adrenaline does, which most people will notice, is that it provokes sweating, because it anticipates that when you're going to run away or you're going to have a fight, you're going to be muscularly very active, and this is going to generate lots of heat, and that needs to be got rid of. So by provoking you to sweat, then the sweat takes some of the heat away from the skin surface. The problem is that when you're in an exam and you're not generating huge amounts of heat, you can have a cold sweat because the sweat just sits there on your skin and it doesn't go anywhere because there's not all this excess heat to soak up. So that's why you get sweaty palms when you go and shake someone's hand in an interview or you can't hold your pen properly when you're scared in your exam. Mm, right, thank you very much, Chris. Now then, um, one here. Um, could Chris tell me what he thinks the human race will evolve into over the next few million years? Thanks, Martin, on the A14. 
difficult one. Um, we've been around for about six million years. So, in other words, if you look at our DNA and compare it with our next nearest relative, and that's the chimpanzees and bonobos and things, this suggests that we split off as humans initially about six million years ago. So, to 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 go from being something resembling a chimpanzee-ish to today has taken about six million years. Now, there's no evidence that we're evolving at a different rate now than we did originally. It's just that the world we live in and the pressures that are on us to make us evolve and change are slightly different today, and it's the pressures that we live under that make us change.、Um, I suspect that prob- probably there'll be an evolution of humankind to be slightly less likely to wage war on each other, because we're very good at doing that. And if we're going to survive, then people who are better at getting on with each other and cooperating are probably going to be more successful because the world has now shrunk. So we're not we're not in isolated little communities anymore. We're one big global family because of things like the internet and communication. So I think probably we're going to see people evolving into into more kind of collaborative types. We're also going to see people who can cope with the calorie overload we have foisted on us today、uh, are, are going to be survivors. So in other words, people that can eat all this rubbish that we have thrust at us from every angle. And not get fat. They're probably going to be、uh, high in the gene pool.、Um, whether we'll still be here, of course, is another matter because、uh, we may by then have blown ourselves up or totally, to- totally destroyed ourselves. It's difficult to say, really, isn't it?、Um, but I strongly suspect we'll still still be here, and I don't think we'll be grossly different than we really are today. All right, interesting thoughts. Now then, how long does it take for a Scotch egg to break down in the body?、Um, somebody suffers from really bad <laughs> breath after eating such things.、Um, his friend says、uh, drinking grapefruit juice will help. Is that right? Scotch eggs are notorious, aren't they? You get them from the wrong place, and you can suffer with the effects of one of those for quite a while afterwards. To put it simply, a Scotch egg. Consists of meat around the outside. That's mainly protein、uh-huh. surrounding an egg in the middle, which again is mainly protein, apart from the egg yolk, which is very high in cholesterol and and fats. Because the egg yolk, if you're a developing bird, you rely on that energy store to provide you with the calories you need to build your body. When you're developing inside your egg, so when a bird is is developing from an embryo into a, a chick, then it breaks down the white of the egg to give it the protein to turn into muscles and cells. And it breaks down the yolk to give it access to the oils and fats and cholesterol it needs to also build build cells. So that's why you have those things in an egg. The body is well equipped to break those things down. So when you eat something, it goes straight into your stomach. The stomach immediately, because there's a connection between your mouth and your stomach. We know that,、mm. and, and just chewing chewing gum, for instance, is sufficient to boost the production of of digestive juices. So the minute food hits the stomach, the stomach. And and then the small intestine begin to secrete this cocktail of degradative digestive juices, and in the stomach it's principally acid, hydrogen chloride, so hydrochloric acid, and that's got a pH of about two, so very very acid. If you put that onto stomach contents, onto say a piece of metal, the metal will fizz and begin to release hydrogen gas because it will be broken down or etched by the acid. It's very strong acid, and the stomach also produces an enzyme called pepsin. And pepsin is very good at breaking down protein. So the first thing the stomach does is it mixes, it acidifies the food, which helps to kill bugs, even in Scotch eggs. The acid then starts to break open some of the proteins, and the pepsin also starts to break open some of the proteins. When the stomach contents is, is no longer lumpy, so it's turned into this kind of thin soup. 
uh, with all the stuff emulsified. And the stomach does that by basically munching the food. When you feel your stomach going over, it's because the wall of the stomach is made of muscle and it's basically crushing and masticating, mashing the food around inside you. Once it's turned into this soup, it then starts to squirt small quantities of it at a time out of the stomach through what's called the pylorus, the pyloric valve, into your small intestine. The first part of the small intestine is the duodenum. It's called that because it's 12 inches long, and that's where the pancreas opens into. And the pancreas secretes even more very powerful enzymes, including trypsin and lipases and things. And those enzymes, again, start to chemically dismantle the calories and the chemicals in the food. And after about an hour, your stomach has started to empty. After a couple of hours, it's shoved all the contents into the small intestine. After up to 24 hours, most of what you've put in has left the body again. And scientists know that because they've done some quite careful what are called transit studies. And they ask people to swallow beads and things that don't get broken down by digestive juices. And they count them in and then they count them out, if you follow my meaning. Mm. I don't know why they need to use beads because sweet corn is an excellent way of doing this. Yes. Um, Sweet corn has in its surface what's called uh, cellulose. The pericarp, the outer coating of sweet corn, is very, very densely clad in cellulose, which is an undigestible polymer of glucose. So that's why sweet corn can't get attacked, because the good bits inside sweet corn are masked inside this protective shield. And if you really want to get the benefit from eating sweet corn, you have to chew it, unfortunately, because otherwise the inevitable consequences happen. So the answer to the, the scotch egg uh, conundrum is it should be all gone and it should be out of your body, what's left of it, by 24 hours. Good stuff. Now, is custard powder, asks Adrian, a bomb if you put a match to it? Yes, it is. This is a fantastic question. Thank you, Adrian, for this opportunity to talk about this because uh, Dave Ansell, who works with me on The Naked Scientist, developed this thing which looked not dissimilar to a crack pipe. Basically, what he's got is a tube with a pipe going into the side of it. And we were doing this at one of the BA festivals of science and we were doing it with flour, in fact, but custard works very well as well and so does corn flour. And if you pack the crack pipe with the uh, corn flour or the custard powder and then you blow it at high speed into a flame then you will get a fireball why does that happen well custard or flour is made of a carbohydrate it's starch and the particles of corn flour and custard are very very small they're less than 100 micrometers that's less than a tenth of a millimeter across and why that's so important is that the particles have a very big surface area to volume ratio in other words there's lots of surface available to mix with oxygen and to burn compared with the amount of fuel actually in each particle so they can burn up very very fast and as a result of that you get this fireball and it's very dangerous in fact and that's why in the old days lots of windmills and other places where flour was being ground often just exploded for no reason because you'd get air which had a huge amount of this dust hovering in the air someone would go inside with a cigarette or some or would light a pipe and the aluminum and the lighting of the pipe would flash into this um, flour and it would be an explosive mix and it causes an explosion because the burning of anything with lots of carbon in it produces lots of carbon dioxide a gas and gases take up lots of space and because they take up lots of space there's a big explosion there's a big increase in volume and things get blown to pieces so it is an effective bomb and uh, you should be careful not to do this because you can actually blow your head off because uh, if you're not careful you, you don't um, appreciate quite how big the the ball of flame that you get is and and you can singe your hair and your eyebrows as i think dave found out on one occasion gosh please don't try this at home
Um, David says, um, hi, Sue, Dr. Chris. I've been experimenting with H2O as a fuel for the last six months. Um, during communication with my friends across the pond, I was told that if I use sodium bicarbonate as an electrolyte, it would not give off CO2. But if I use vinegar, it would give off CO2. I was wondering, is this the case? And is there anywhere he could confirm it? I know what he means. Okay, so what he's doing is he's got water in a water bath and if you pass an electric current so you have two pieces of wire one from the plus side of a battery and the other piece of wire from the minus side of the battery dipping into your solution when the current passes from the battery through the water then it can pull water molecules apart and at one of the electrodes at the minus electrode the cathode you will get hydrogen produced because you get the water molecule is H2O and if you pull a water molecule apart you get H plus hydrogen plus ions which you give some electrons to from the battery and two H plus ions link together to make H2 one molecule of hydrogen and at the opposite electrode at the anode the oxygens that are left from the H2O the water molecule they give away some extra electrons that they've got hanging around and two of them join together and form a molecule of O2 oxygen but contrary to popular belief oxygen sorry water is not a very good conductor of electricity in fact you have to have quite a high voltage across some water to, to make it conduct electricity because water doesn't very readily split up into these ions these charged particles that carry energy so how do you get the current to flow through the water very well well if you add something which when it goes into the water breaks up into these charged particles called ions then the current will flow much more readily through the solution and when you add sodium bicarbonate this dissociates in the water into sodium ions Na+, and also bicarbonate ions HCO3-. And so because they're charged already, they can help the current to flow through the solution. If you add vinegar, that's acetic acid, and what you'll end up with is some hydrogen ions and some acetate ions, and they will carry the current through the solution for you. I'd, I'd be very surprised if you get carbon dioxide produced because that is a totally inert molecule. It's very, very unlikely you would produce that. It's more likely that you would actually produce oxygen and hydrogen from your apparatus. Um, I'd, li I'd like to see some analysis proving that carbon dioxide came off because that would be a very unusual reaction if you were managing to do that. So um, perhaps, perhaps you could send me some data on, on that, whoever's doing that experiment. But it's I David. think it's more likely um, David's finding he's getting hydrogen and oxygen and that the charged particles that he's adding to the water are helping the electricity to flow back and forth through it. Mm. I'm sure that um, he's very determined to do this if he's been working on it for over uh, six months or so. So good luck, David, and uh, get in touch with Dr. Chris. He'd love to hear from you. Right, uh, we've got John on the line. Hello, John. Hello. You're through to Dr. Chris. A, a little problem. I've, got, I've had uh, two months of burning feeling, sensation on the legs, on the feet and on the hands, like a tingling sensation. I've had all the blood tests done from the hospital and everything come back all clear and I'm still getting this. Well, I've been suffering this for two months. I just wonder if you'd, anything uh, you can put a light on the subject for me. Is it on both hands and both feet? Uh, yeah, and both legs as well, both sides. Sure. And did it start all of a sudden? Yes, just came up on the legs first of all, yes. Hmm. And uh, have you been diabetic in the past? No, I had a check for diabetes and everything was okay on the blood test. Okay, and there's, there's been no other major health problems that, that have been going on? Not really, no. I'm just, I've just on three types of tablet, which is antivastin uh, for the um, cholesterol. The other one's beta-suicide yeah. and amiprazole. I've been on those three for about yeah. a year now, but... Um, 
he's taken me on the Antavastan just to try to see what happens uh, if there's any uh, effect at all, but there's been no effects. It's still the mm. same. It's dangerous for me to do on-air diagnoses, so I prefer not to do that, but I don't mind talking in general terms about why you get these funny, painful situations like this. This sounds like it could be what's called neuropathic pain. This is where the nervous system thinks that there's pain and there isn't. And there's a number of reasons why you can get this, but a common cause is actually diabetes. And it's a condition called neuropathy. And uncontrolled diabetes can damage nerve cells and especially the very small nerve fibres that convey pain and temperature sensations. And that's why people get these burning, stinging sensations. There are other causes, and I think that you probably do need investigating to try and find out why you've got this, yes, if nothing yes. else, just to try and give you some kind of relief from it. Um, but I think it would be very unethical of me to speculate as to what might be wrong with you under these circumstances. So right. I hope you'll appreciate why I'm reticent to do that. Yes, thanks very much indeed. I, wish, I shall do that with my doctors anyway. Look Thank after you. yourself, John. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Keith has called in and says, um, Dr Chris, do you think that a fat strip, like a nicotine um, patch, could work to help people with their weight? I'm not sure that you could have a kind of patch that would say to your body, here's some fat, look, look, um, you're, you're fine, you don't need to eat. But I think what is realistic is that scientists have now begun to dissect away the chemical pathways by which the body signals when it's eaten and when it's hungry. So in other words, scientists have begun to work out what the signals are that go from the fat under the skin that tells the body how much weight you're carrying, because it does. There's a hormone called leptin. Leptos is the Greek word for thin. So they called this hormone leptin because if you have too much of it, then you lose weight, and if you have too little of it, then you gain weight. And so fat cells pump out this hormone leptin. It goes through the bloodstream into the brain's hypothalamus, which is where your appetite centre is in your brain and leptin shuts off appetite. So that's one hormone we understand. There are other chemicals. There's one called ghrelin, which is a hormone that comes out of the stomach wall, and it tends to be produced when you're hungry, so it boosts appetite. It's also produced when you're tired, so it boosts appetite when you're tired. So sometimes you can lose weight just paradoxically by staying in bed for an extra hour and getting more sleep. Mm. And there are other hormones which are now being picked up which are very important for signalling to the brain how well fed you are. And I suspect that in a few years' time, more and more molecules will have been discovered that regulate our appetite, and molecules will have been discovered that can block those molecules, and I suspect there will be drugs, if not patches, that you could stick on your skin that will have an, an effect on these appetite signalling systems, and they will help people who have a problem with eating or, or want to lose weight to reduce their appetite. Or, paradoxically, people perhaps who have the opposite problem and they don't want to eat, perhaps it would help them too. So, at the moment, I think it's a very good time to, to be into this kind of thing because scientists are doing enormous amounts of work and making big leaps forward with how these whole systems work. And it's very important that we do understand them because the amount of people who are now obese in the Western world is huge. In America, about 30 to 50% of the population are obese, and in Britain, it's about 20% of the population who are obese. Now, when mm. I was at medical school about 10, 15 years ago, um, it, that number was 12% of women and about 9% of men were obese. So in just 10 years, we've doubled those numbers, and that's very scary because obesity is strongly linked to diabetes. And we reckon that obesity costs the NHS in ill health about three to four billion pounds every single year. So solving that problem is high up on the agenda. And so scientists want to find ways to help people so that we can deal with this problem and, and therefore save the NHS some money and, and save people some ill health.
Thank you very much, Dr. Chris. A question for you to answer. Um, Dick says, what is the possibility of the Earth running out of oxygen? Probably not. Where the oxygen came from on Earth is an interesting story because until about two and a half billion years ago, so roughly halfway through the age of our planet, because Earth's been hovering around in space for about four and a half billion years, and there was very little oxygen on Earth to start with because the Earth's environment was what's called very uh, reducing. In other words, the, there were lots of things like iron and other things around on the early Earth were, were, that were very hungry for oxygen. They would grab oxygen and lock it up chemically. And it wasn't until about two and a half billion years ago when suddenly there was this thing called the Great Oxidation Event and the Earth's oxygen level rocketed up. And this is probably down to microorganisms. There are things called cyanobacteria that had evolved by then. These are tiny microorganisms that Cat that, that not only are they bacteria, but they are also allied to plants. They're like algae because they have photosynthesis built into them. They have uh, tiny structures inside their cells that have the pigment chlorophyll, which is the green stuff that you see in trees. And this is how trees capture the energy in sunlight and they react it with or they use it to drive chemical reactions inside their cells that culminates in the production of oxygen and food for them. And this is thought to have suddenly caused a big surge in oxygen levels on Earth about two and a half billion years ago. And that meant that organisms that could use oxygen, they weren't anaerobes anymore, they were, they were aerobic organisms, but like us, could begin to then evolve. And that, the oxygen levels in the past have been a lot higher than they are today. Um, when about two or three hundred million years ago, the oxygen levels were roughly... Uh, 30%. So if you look at the atmosphere today, about 20% of the atmosphere is oxygen and about 80% is nitrogen. There are a few trace elements on top. But uh, that, that meant that when, when we look at the time of the dinosaurs, there could be organisms like massive dragonflies flying around because that much higher oxygen level could sustain very big animals because the higher oxygen concentrations made it easier for the gas to diffuse into the tissues of the animals. Uh, various processes mean that the oxygen level today is a, a more reasonable 20%. You don't want the oxygen level to be too high because then you get lots of forest fires and it's unpleasant. Uh, so we, we've had a, a level of about 20% for quite a long time now and the likelihood is that it's going to be relatively stable. I don't think we're going to run out of oxygen um, too quickly. Um, as soon as things that, that remove oxygen from the, the, from the environment go up, they tend to produce more carbon dioxide, such as a fire or something, and the carbon dioxide then fertilises the sea and it fertilises forests and it makes them grow better and they produce more oxygen for us. So there's all one big cycle going on. So I don't think we're going to asphyxiate before too long. I, th I think we're all right for the time being. Let's hope not. There's one question here that's come in from Trevor. He says, uh, why does the hair on my head need cutting every few weeks, but the hair on my other parts doesn't? In terms of why uh, we actually have different uh, hair growth effects, let's look at that. Well, hair grows from a hair follicle, and hair has three phases to its life cycle. So you have what's called an anagen phase, that's the growth phase of the hair, and that's a, a variable length of time. And when the, when the hair follicle is in anagen phase, it produces new hair, and hair is a polymer. It's a bit like plaited strings, if you like. It's a plait of the polymer keratin, which is the same stuff that make up nails. And the hair gets fed out through this sort of nozzle, which is the hair follicle, and all the time the hair follicle keeps making new keratin, you make a longer hair. And it's patterned into the hair follicle, genetically, how long its growth phase is. So if you have a short growth phase, then the hair will only grow for a short time before the follicle switches into the next stage of its cycle, which is called the catagen phase. And catagen means breakdown, and that's when the follicle shuts off and the hair falls out. 
and then the follicle goes into the third phase of its life, which is called the thelogen, or resting phase, and then it goes back to the beginning and becomes anagen again. And different hair follicles across different parts of the body have different length anagen phases. And this is why hairs on different bits of the body grow for different lengths of time. So the anagen phase of a head hair can be several years in length. The anagen phase of an eyelash is about two weeks. Otherwise, if it was several years in length, you'd have to sort of part the hair before you could see. And in the case of a pubic hair and an underarm pubic hair, it's about three weeks. And then the hair stops growing and falls out. And that's fortunate because otherwise you'd have a bit of a jungle going on down there and under your arms and stuff, and that could get nasty. So, And that's exactly the same reason why dogs can be long-haired, short-haired, curly-haired, and some dogs have hair that falls out quite quickly. Other dogs grow hair that, that needs clipping off for whatever reason. Oh, hairy one, that one. Thank you, Chris. Uh, one quick one before uh, we say goodbye to you. Uh, Luscious Lillian says, Can you ask that gorgeous naked scientist this question? I heard it the other day but never caught the answer. The question is, can blind people see what they are dreaming it depends when they go blind and if you ask a blind person this I, I had a friend who was blind and he used to say to me I love going to sleep because I can see again and the reason for that was because he could see and went blind later in life mm. but I had another blind friend who I used to talk to and he was blind from birth and so he never saw. And I asked them one day precisely this question, how their dream experience is compared. So obviously I've mentioned the guy who wasn't blind always, mm. he, he used to go to sleep and his dreams would be pictures and images. The chap who had never seen, he did dream, but he dreamt words and sounds. So in other words, he re-experienced in his sleep the life he experienced during the day. And he just didn't have any images. So I think that, that what this tells us and what we know about how the brain works is when you go to sleep and you dream, the parts of the brain which you do various jobs with during the day become active when you go to sleep. And when you're dreaming, the visual areas of the brain switch on. So if they're the areas of the brain that normally decode vision for you, they're showing you some of the pictures and recreating some of the imagery that you have in your memory. Whereas if you don't have any visual memories, then they've got nothing to show you. So you tend to experience dreams as the things you do experience, which is largely sound. People who are blind live in a very tactile world, dominated by what they can feel and touch, what they can sense, taste, and also hear. And that's exactly what my friend said he experienced when he went to sleep, having never ever been out of sea. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. 